Welcome to the Meeting Explorers podcast. This is Fredrik Strang. In this episode, I'm thrilled to talk to Raha Muharik, first Arab woman and youngest Arab to have climbed Mount Everest and the Seven Summits. She comes from the flat desert of Riyadh in Saudi Arabia, where the only ice she ever saw was from the fridge. She did not have access to ice-covered jagged peaks, yet her dreams were stronger than both gender inequality and partially a society which ostracized females who disrupts the status quo. As Raha puts it, she was meant for greater things. On the question why she climbs mountains, her laconic answer is, quote, because I was told I couldn't, end quote. According to her, nobody believed she could do it. Being the first Saudi woman to climb Everest was far from what people expected. She's literally eradicated this stereotype and is now one of the leading Saudi females who are recognized to break barriers and defy all norms. She says that she's honored that she's now part of history, but she doesn't think it would mean anything if it doesn't change anything. She's an advocate for women empowerment and she says that the door were opened by this generation, it's the new generation's turn to walk through them. She's been titled one of the 100 most powerful Arabs under Fordalist by ArabianBusiness.com. She's currently pursuing her MBA at Synergy University Dubai campus with a specialization in women's leadership and work as a graphic designer. She comes from a somewhat traditional family in Saudi Arabia, which according to the Human Rights Watch, is the world's only nation that actively discourages girls to participate in sporting events in government schools. And convincing her family to let her climb was a greater challenge than climbing the mountain itself. Speaking about her achievements, she said, I really don't care about being the first as long as it inspires someone else to be second. She's not the average Joe that gives up easily. She's a Saudi woman who touched the sky and humbly asks, what are your dreams? So without further delay, I bring you Raha Mohar. Welcome, Ra. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Did I pronounce that right, Ra? Ra Raha, yeah. Raha, thank you. Raha. Well, before we dig into your remarkable journey from the desert in Saudi Arabia to the top of the world, the challenging situation of being a woman of sports in Saudi, um, the power of the word no, and helping educating children in Nepal. Could you please tell us a bit about yourself and your background? Uh, it's a crazy story because if you would have asked me 10 years ago, where would I be? I would never had imagined I'd ever, ever be where I am today. But it all started, I think, as a child. I was very curious. I was very sporty, athletic, and very hyper. So my family kind of threw me in every single thing I could do in terms of sports. They kept trying to just put me in sports, I think. To, to keep me away from trouble. And then this, this person, this child who was very curious and very hyper grew into a, uh, an adventurous person. I, I scuba dived, I, I, I horseback ride, anything I could do, I could do. And then uh, just I decided to try something new in my life. I'm giving you a very, very quick version of, of how things started, but I decided Please, to do something. Please, if you want to take your time, I, no worries. <laughs> 
we want the long version. This is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. Like this is just, I think the essential, the essential thing about me that made me different growing up was the fact that I was always very curious, very athletic. And I had parents that um, were very understanding. They weren't always understanding, but I have amazing parents. So they kind of fed and grew this character. And this is growing up in a time where, uh, you know, sports is, is, was not very accepted and not very uh, seen as a career. Now, thank God, the things have changed and things have improved and it's an amazing time for women in sports in Saudi Arabia. But growing up, it wasn't the case. So I think in essence, I was always uh, an adventurous little girl and I don't think I ever grew up. I don't think it will ever leave me. I think I'll always be like this. I'd I love to talk more about this fire inside you, the spark. But I'm also curious, since you mentioned a little bit, growing up in Saudi with uh, the predicament where sports, especially women in sports, was not that accepted. Your parents differed quite a lot from what we see as standard in Saudi. How come? Why were they so different? Yeah. And how come they had the courage to allow you to do these amazing things? I'm very lucky. I think what I'm very lucky that my parents, they're very loving and understanding. And I think even with the things that they weren't okay with, they were trying to understand, especially with mountaineering. My family was completely shocked when I started mountaineering, but they, they always tried to understand. Um, let, let me just be ex explain. We had sports, but it was always in private, in, in private schools and in not in public so we did have sports but not competitively so it wasn't accepted to be in public and to run for example for a woman or to do sport you know what i mean like it wasn't it was there because a lot of people have this mis misunderstanding there were sports but you couldn't do it in public hmm. um but in, in my case I, I i loved horseback riding i, I scuba diving and um you know all of these sports were outdoorsy so growing up, I think the, the, the society and culture started to slowly open their mind as well to the fact that this is okay. It's okay to be athletic and to be a woman. It's okay to want to be an adventurous traveler. Do you know what I mean? Like it, growing up, it was very, very different than what it is now. But there's a big distinction between it didn't exist and it was in, in, in private and in, in limited uh, circumstances. Do you know what I mean? Because this is something people need to understand. It existed. We had it in schools, but you couldn't, for example, go and compete in public, go play football in public. Well, I'm glad you clarify that because I think that um, this scrutiny, understanding how the situation is, I think that many people bypass that and don't have the and the full the comprehension yeah. yeah the full comprehension yeah. about it and i think it's very essential for us to learn about and i'm glad yeah. you're bringing that out because this seems then, more positive than the picture i imagined exactly so it the thing is where was the line drawn society society wise it was drawn when it became public because we had to abide by specific uh, uh outfits right so Public, that's why it was not really accepted in public for women to do sports and there weren't facilities so that's why it didn't exist as it is now you know what i mean it's it's a it's a multitude of things why sports didn't exist it wasn't just because people didn't want it hmm. no it was a it, it was many many reasons another reason was it was seen as male 
till now, it's seen as a very male, uh, not feminine. A lot of people assume that being athletic and sporty makes you boyish or, or not feminine. And that's another misconception that has slowly changed over the years. So when gyms started to open up the last couple of years, because they, we didn't have gyms for women before to, in the same capacity as now. So you couldn't have a gym that was solely for women. Uh, you had a few in a few private uh, uh, institutes, but you didn't have it widely available. But now it's available and that stigma is slowly breaking. Because a gym is a place where you can improve your, your health, improve your lifestyle. It's not only something that, that, it's not only lifting weights and looking buff, right? So the fact that there are slowly things being, being offered to society has expanded the societal expectation of what sports is. And that has helped us in turn have a more healthy and more uh, aware culture around sports. It stopped being only for boys. It became a lifestyle. You know what I mean? I love it. I love it. And I also heard that the obesity levels in Saudi are increasing as in many countries around the world and encouraging mm -hmm. women in particular to go into sports. That's a very exactly. good method. That's a very good solution, uh, panacea, if you would like, to uh, fight and combat obesity. A middle, uh, so a middle, how, middle how do we get more? If, so, for example, how do we get more so women in Saudi to uh, join sports? I think uh, it. For, first of all, it needs to come from the top down, which means from from the higher level of society down and in out so from inside of the family to out when i mean top down i mean the amount of effort that has been put into women's sports the last let's say three or four years is incredible they have really really changed the game and have really empowered a lot of change makers uh when it comes to women's sports one of them is princess rima bin bandar who is a very dear friend of mine uh who is a doer she 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 was the head of uh sports and she really made a difference and empowered a lot of the sporting clubs that were here. So for example, we have a climbing association, we have basketball that didn't exist before. So it's slowly changing and it, it, it needed to come from the top down first and then in, from inside to out, meaning inside the family, there should be awareness that sports is yeah, yeah, we're keeping the audience here, you know, excited, you know. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you wanted an adventure, so there you True. go. Sometimes internet connection can be better on the top of Mount Everest, ironically. I know. I know. Sorry, it just suddenly dropped and then nothing was working. I'm sorry. Um, I completely forgot what I was saying. Well, ah, whatever you said, it was sorry. very good. It was profound. <laughs> and I, maybe I can sorry. Uh, get you up to speed. We were talking about introducing sports into women. Uh, yeah. Introducing so it's it. a mentality. It's a mentality that needs to, and it is slowly breaking. Uh, the fact that I've become more and more accepted and a lot of schools started calling me, a lot of institutes started calling me in the region in general, but specifically in Saudi as well, means that an, an, an athletic, adventurous woman is no longer a taboo, right? I, mm. Otherwise, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have had the opportunity uh, to speak at events as much as I did. So, um, yeah, it's a mentality that slowly needs to change, and I can, I can see a change. I can clearly see a change. I'm so happy to see it. Wonderful. And I'm, I'm sure you've been part of the change. Apparently have, according to a little girl who uh, <laughs> met you. That this was... 
cute story. Yeah, this is crazy. She it's was inspired crazy. by you to talk to her dad about um, riding a bike because if you could climb to the top of the world, she could probably ride a bike. And this was before riding a bike it was, accepted. was allowed, yeah. accepted in the Saudi. So having bicycles was, of course, allowed in your privacy, in your house, but you couldn't actually go out. You couldn't be in public uh, with a bike. You always had to have uh, your privacy or in a, in a private garden. So recently it's become accepted. And then this little girl was telling me that she, she wants to ride a bike. She, she decided to ride a bike. She wants a bike. Uh, and because if I can climb my mountain, I can climb, I can, she can ride a bike. And that was one of the m most profound moments for me because up to that point, I was really not comfortable with the attention I got. I wasn't comfortable with the media. I wasn't comfortable with, with just, I, I thought I got too much, I didn't deserve the attention. And then once I realized that maybe my crazy story and my passion uh, and my adventure would inspire others and the fact that this little girl found inspiration in me really hit me hard and it made me realize that I have a purpose that was bigger than my own and I had a mission that was beyond the mountains um and yeah it was very very you know turning point in my career I was like oh wow people look up to me wow what am I gonna do now <laughs> well I'm a big fan of Dalai Lama and his one-liners and he said that the purpose of life is bringing joy to other people and what you did bringing joy to that girl. And I think many in general, which we are not in the West aware of to a certain degree has just been phenomenal. So has this validated your climbs by the fact that you now bring happiness and joy and you impose change in the society? I wouldn't say it I wouldn't say validated because to me, climbing was very personal, but I would say, I would definitely say it gave it a deeper reason. It gave it a deeper purpose. The fact that the story is no longer just about me and my crazy dreams. The story can inspire others. The, the story can uh, open, help expand other people's imaginations about the dreams and i say other people because it's not just for women or or specifically women. for anyone to be able to inspire others to live their dream is one of the most rewarding things in life when you when you when what you do is your when what you do is a passion when i'm i, I was just passionate about adventure and travel i never did it for anything i didn't do it for fame i didn't do it for the money because there was not there was none there wasn't any money in this when i started climbing uh it, it all the projects and stuff came years after i fought to be a, a recognized uh adventure personality in the region it, it, I, I i took a big gamble quitting my job and, and going to mountaineering spending all my savings in the first couple of mountains was a big risk but i still would have done it even again because it it, it made me realize the amount of potential we have inside us that that just needs the courage to come out most of the time we're just too afraid to start anything new because we're afraid of failing and one of the best lessons in life is to fail and one of the best journeys in life is the way to recovering from these failures so i think uh a lot of people don't understand this about my story i never set out to be 
where I am, <laughs> but I dreamt of being where I am, but I ended up there anyway. And I think the moral is um, follow your passion and it will lead you to your dreams. Well, you traveled on seven continents. We'll speak more about the seven summits a little bit later <laughs> on. But would you say that the mental fortitude, the mental resilience in handling adversity and failures differs from continent to continent, from country to of country? Of course. From mountain to mountain. It really, like, a lot of people assume you need a strong body, you can climb whatever. Not true. Not true at all. And you know this more than anybody. The amount of people that we, you have experienced, probably, and me, who have everything right, who have the physical, physicality, they're strong, but they don't have the mental capacity to handle mountaineering, they fail. Mountaineering is, so, is such a mind game, and every culture, every, uh, every type of terrain and type of climb, uh, is it an assist, a non-assist, uh, alpinism, rock, every single one has its unique set of skills. Not physical, of course it has, that's, that's a given. But it also has its unique set of mental capacity. Is it, is it overly cold? Is it overly hot? Do you have a big team or a small team? All these play a role. And people show their true colors when they are stressed. Uh, in any given day, when someone is angry, when someone is under pressure, the real them comes out. Add to that the fact that you are on a mountain Add to that the fact that you're uncomfortable, tired, hungry, cold. Add to that the fact that many of the times people are from completely different backgrounds and you have a recipe for disaster. And what's, what's important is to have the right state of mind, the right attitude, and above all, respect. Do you know what I mean, Frederick? This is very important for people to understand. You can, be, you can be one of the best climbers in the world, but if you don't have the right attitude, you will not be able to, to, to succeed in this career. Well, hail on that. I agree. <laughs> Where do I sign? <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. But people don't know this. You just think, oh, yeah, you just show up and, you know. No, it takes so much of you. It takes so much of your personality and who you are, your character, patience. Everything comes out when you're stressed. Well, an expedition can be summarized by the four seasons. And that's how I look at it. You have all that's these set emotions. You have summer, it's flourishing, it's vibrant, and it's lush and colorful. And then you have the winter, cold, a little bit bitter, etc. And it all resembles down into an expedition. And it's like a life in fast forward. What exactly. were you expecting from expeditions thinking and reflecting about the fact that you came from desert where you have more yeah. or less one season. Were yeah. you prepared for all the changes or, or were you preparing yourself as you described before, trying to YouTube yourself to accustom yeah. yourself to <laughs> this so situation? I, 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 for those of you who are listening who don't know, I come from, I'm, from, I'm Saudi, I'm from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And I come from a city called Jeddah. It's on the Red Sea. Beautiful, beautiful uh, uh, coast. But we don't have ice. Like the only ice I would see was in the refrigerator in my ice cream. So there isn't really in this specific area in Saudi. There, isn't ice. there are other parts of Saudi that are cold. Uh, and in some rare occasions, a little bit of ice. But I hadn't lived there. So I had to literally research every single aspect of my expedition. 
the terrain, training, gear. And please remember that this was a few years ago now when you couldn't find the gear. Like I remember I had to beg a brand to send me my summit suits for Everest. A brand from what Seattle. What did they think because... when they were shipping down exactly. to Saudi? <laughs> Are you crazy? So, exactly. I, I emailed. So uh, I'm 170 and uh, I, I'm, I'm a slender build, but a, a strong slender build. But I'm 170 and I'm not uh, broad. So I needed a summit suit to be um, custom made so that it doesn't have too much uh, crotch space or too much under armpit space so that you don't get cold, right? Like you needed a summit suit needs to be well fitted. Otherwise it's cumbersome. And it, it, you know what I mean? It doesn't, if it's too tight, too, not enough circulation. If it's too loose, not enough insulation, right? So I had to get a summit suit tailor made. So I emailed this company in Seattle and I told them who I am and I'm attempting to climb Everest. And they were like, no, we're not sending you a summit suit to Saudi Arabia. And I said, please, I have this big climb. I need the summit suit. I beg you. And, and I think I can Im even imagine the conversation. They were like, what? Um, but eventually I got the suit. I ordered my, my, my Las Sportivas from Nepal. Also, I had issues with my feet. I have very freakishly small feet for my height. So I had to find special sportivas. Everything was difficult. Training was difficult. Um, you know, going to these mountains are hard. And then add to the fact that you live in the Middle East, add to the fact that you're a woman, <laughs> and nearly broke. I was super broke by the time I wanted to climb that mountain. So it was, everything was just against me. But that's when, you know, conviction kicks in. That's when belief in yourself kicks in. and. Truly, truly, I believe um, I wanted to do this, regardless of all these things. I, I mean, I, I look back now and I think, what was I thinking? But it's, it's amazing how it worked out, right? It's amazing how when something is fated and you put in the right time and effort, that it happens. It's beautiful, um, isn't it? I, I agree. And here is the odd question for you. Uh, perhaps not so difficult to answer, but after spending so much time in cold areas, have you become more resistant to cold? Not at all. <laughs> I, still, I still get cold in the cinema in the Middle East. I still don't open the AC. The cheapest bill I ever need to pay in my apartment in Dubai is the chiller bill because I almost never open the AC. They call me the lizard in my house because I walk around closing all of the ACs <laughs> in the house. So no, I, I still, my biggest enemy I think is the cold till now. I think it's still, and it's incredible. Like if you knew how much I hate the cold, you would not believe that I climbed these mountains. And that's another example of what mind over matter is. I hate the cold. I absolutely which, hate the cold. Which makes your achievements more astounding, I would say. But speaking crazy. about crazy, uh, you probably encountered a lot of people, my guess, that when you articulated your goals, you were either mad out of your mind or were you were crazy. <laughs> and I know that uh, a profound <laughs> question that you asked your father, you were asking for his allowance and for him to accept your choices in embarking on expeditions and climbing. But the word no that was expressed from him. 
was the most powerful word ever and it changed you. it How? was i i can't explain it other than it was the loudest quietest noise i ever heard in my life it was the no that came after the biggest question i had i probably one of the biggest questions i had to ask my father was i needed his blessing to go climb uh, my very first mountain um in in tanzania i also needed help uh because i couldn't afford it i also needed his a little bit of his support that was in the beginning of my mountaineering career right i had no idea what i was doing i needed new gear i needed it was like a mini little investment and he he just flat out was like uh no he he straight up just said no he didn't i think what bothered me the most is the fact that it came so fast he just said no i know it came out of love but i know it's because he was worried i mean he's a dad any dad would feel this way but i also deep down inside i knew that it it also had a big role because i'm a woman i'm a i'm a girl and that bothered me that really bothered me and and it that little tiny two letter word changed my life it really it made me angry in a way that wanted that pushed me to want to change it and um my dad always says i, I don't say no to her anymore she's she, whenever i say no to her it's like an invitation <laughs> to to fight it seems <laughs> not that fight this... i mean we don't fight but we like it's an invitation for her to like you know change the no all the time it seems that this came from his protective part taking care of and course. making sure Definitely. that you have a prosperous and happy life and not so much from what are the neighbors going to say what would you no, say no it also he, it also came from that he or he said he also said that I was worried about uh you know culture views he also says that i think it's a mixture when when a father fears for his daughter it's everything it's fear of her getting hurt physically as also socially like he he was worried as well and i i'll never forget one of the the conversations with my mother so when i decided to climb everest so i went into mountaineering thinking i'm just going to do one mountain and that's it but i fell in love with mountains in a way that i never imagined we can discuss that later but the fact that my my mom sat me down and had to uh, tell me are you are you aware that what you're doing is going to change you in 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 the eyes of society like she she sat me down and she said you know you you will forever be in a category of women that are different in society are you i'm really curious about if there was part fear or some prevalence <laughs> in you when you told your parents about your choice and that you wanted to climb mountains were you aware or concerned about what kind of implications this might have on you and and your family on the path that you chose Of of course I was worried about how it would be perceived for their sake but I didn't care but I was of course worried that they would be perceived negatively so of course I I have lovely parents so I was really worried about that that uh that part but um in the end I think uh if you're passionate about something if it's if it's your belief and conviction and you're not hurting anybody and you're doing it out of a good place in your heart then you shouldn't be um it shouldn't be taken away from you you should uh you should be able to practice what what you what you want what your your passions in life um so yeah it was very hard in the beginning but once they started to realize that I'm very happy and, and this is exactly what I wanted 
they I think they couldn't fight me anymore. <laughs> I think they knew that they had to, uh, as I like to call it, they had to join my madness. So they had to accept that they have a daughter that's different, that they have a daughter that has different aspirations and different uh, um, paths, a path in life. And I, I, I distinctly remember once showing my dad a video of um, me on Elbrus. Uh, wind, you know, when Elbrus gets really bad, it becomes really windy. Bad wind, I looked like I was like 50 years old, burnt face and I was showing him this video and he was just shocked looking at me and then looking at the video and then he he said something that was so profound he said uh, um, I don't understand why you do this to yourself but I understand that this is what you need to do and it's your choice I understand that this is your choice and that's so powerful because a lot of times parents mis misunderstand their child's um, uh, the reasoning and you don't have to always understand you just have to respect it and I think I think that's when I slowly started to win him over to my side and he became and still is uh, and my mother as well one of the most two of the most um, supportive people and driving forces of my life um, ironically I pulled out of Everest I nearly cancelled my Everest uh, application uh, for for a multi multitude of reasons, my dad was the one that sent it in the end uh, and helped fund it. Ironically. Were you surprised? Thing, I was shocked. I was shocked. So I was. I, I pulled out. I said, "Okay, I'm not gonna go. Uh, maybe it's not meant to be." And I was. I was fighting, and it wasn't working. I, I didn't have the money. I was not able. It was really difficult. But um, and I I nearly gave up. I nearly said, "You know, okay, it's done." But he, he believed in me even when I didn't believe in myself. And he, he walked in with the confirmation of the application and said, I signed you up. Because I, I, I had connected him with the climbing agency because I needed uh, a little bit of money to get my spot ready. And I was hoping to raise the rest of the money, but I didn't. I couldn't raise the money. So he and my mom were the driving force in the end and they they got, they got me there. They took me, they literally opened the doors to my dreams. And I, I appreciate that. And he, he, he says, he's like, I lived in horror. Both of them, both of my parents lived in horror for two months or however long it takes me to climb any mountain. But they, they would choose to live in that fear over telling me not to live my dream. And that to me is so powerful and so important to share their part of the journey as well, because it is their journey uh, that led me to where I am. So I owe a lot to them. Till this day, I think the whole family thinks I'm, I'm nuts. Like till this day, I'm the cuckoo of the family. I'm the black sheep. But uh, I think they've grown to accept that I am just different. And uh, there's nothing wrong with being different. And there's no shame in it. Well, but this yeah, is beautiful. I think, I think I think they've accepted that. I think they they kind of like yeah, yeah. That that's the the you know the the crazy one in the family. This is beautiful. Your father said <laughs> no, and then he is the supporting figure who kicks exactly. you out and make you go to Everest. And uh, yeah, despite their fear and despite their the terror that must have gone through everything 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 was like culturally uh, emotionally everything was so difficult for them but uh he he says he says i i knew this meant everything to you and i could see that 
if I didn't help you, you would fi- probably find another way of, of getting there, which would be more difficult and more dangerous. So I, I chose to help you in your journey and not fight you. When people say that something is impossible, how do you react? <laughs> It's an invitation. Um, things that are impossible are an invitation to me. Uh, and I think any sing- every single person in history that has proven something to be possible when it was impossible had the same mentality. Every single person in history was told this is impossible or they had their own versions of the word no. And, um, and we, I think we are a specific type of human, these stubborn, uh, hard-headed, um, passionate people um, that love to, to, to just break, break the reality, break the mold. Uh, and kill the stereotype. I think we're a specific type of person that exists um, that just can't accept it. And I, and I admit, I, until this day, till this day, there are many times where I have to calm myself when I'm told no, or when I, when I feel like someone's belittling me, or when I feel like someone is not giving me my right or my due, I really get frustrated. And it, and it pushes me in a, in a positive way. I'm very lucky that I, I'm able to take a very negative thing, which is obstacles and no and negativity into fuel. And I think this is a, this is a, a, uh, a trait that we need to learn as adults to take the um, negativity and let it fuel you uh, rather than, uh, you know, take you down. What does fear mean to you? Um, I've mentioned this before. I have a very interesting relationship with fear. Um, I have befriended it. I have accepted fear. Uh, a lot of people say, oh, but weren't you afraid? I say, oh yeah, I was terrified, but I did it anyway. And that's a very healthy relationship with fear to let it move you, not stop you to let it teach you how to grow. Um, of course I'm afraid of many things in life and, um, You'd be shocked if you asked me what's what's the thing that scares me the most. You wouldn't believe it. It's not. I have fears. Yeah, I have fears of of, of falling and getting hurt, of, of 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 losing my life. Of I have lots of fear of losing my family. These are major big fears. But the biggest fear in my life, if you would believe, is boredom. Is to be bored. Is to be comfortable to the extent to where I feel like I'm bored. That scares me. That scares me more than any cut or any bruise or any pain because uh, I never want to live a boring life. I never want to be um, one of those people who, who lives but isn't alive. I refuse to be one of those people. So my biggest fear, everyone asks me, what's your biggest fear? I tell them boredom. <laughs> I get boredom scares me. Um, and really like now during, during the, the, the pandemic and lockdown and, I, I, I really need to actively keep myself busy. I need to actively find things to do. So every couple of days, and I know you, we want to discuss this later, but every couple of days I think of something to do, to either fix, to organize, to, because otherwise I'll go crazy. How do you cope in bad weather when you're trapped inside a tent and enduring a lasting storm that might prolong one week two weeks 
I suppose you have encountered this in the past. Oh, no, what do you yes. do? What do you do to keep um, yourself busy? I'm okay. At some point, you run out of things to read because you have very limited things on the mountain, right? And at some point, you get sick of your your tent mates because you're stuck with them. Uh, you even get sick of who you are. You get sick of your own self and your own thoughts. Uh, what's important to me and my advice is, is to always try to, to have an active imagination that can help take you to other places. I call it autopilot. I go on autopilot. I reminisce. I, I um, try to keep my mind busy positively because there's nothing worse than being stuck in a place that you, you can't get out of and then having negative thoughts. That's a recipe for a disaster. If you are feeding the fear, and, and, and I love this, um, uh, uh, I, I, I don't know exactly who said, who, which culture says it, but I think it's a, a, a Native American. Um, they, they, they have a very interesting saying about fear. And please excuse me for messing up the proverb, but it basically means that uh, if you have two wolves, one you feed and one you starve, which one will be stronger? And the answer, of course, is the one you feed. And that's what fear is. If you feed it, it becomes stronger. If you starve, it becomes weak. So you try very hard to stay positive. You try very hard. And, and this is another thing that I want to break it to the listeners. Being happy and positive is a lot of work. It does not come to you. In a Maybe big the biggest lie there is, the biggest conspiracy exactly. lie. Like people, people think, people assume that happiness is a given. I'm sorry to, to break it to you, but it is not. It is like every single uh, element in your life that needs work, like your health, like your mentality, like your attitude. You need to work on it. You need to work on your positivity, on your state of mind. I'm not saying this and I'm telling you that I am always happy and I'm always positive. No, I have days. I call them no pants, miserable days. I have days where I'm so lazy. I'm wearing like I, I can't even get out of my room. I have those days and that's normal part of human development to have down days. But please don't let those days be the norm. Don't let those days be the days that define who you are. Let them be the one-off handful of days a year that you get where you sit down wearing a dirty shirt, eating Nutella out of a, a jar, depressed or what. It happens. We get there. We are human beings. We have a reign of emotion. But always try when you can to boost yourself. Always try to find the things that make you happy. Surround yourself with people that make you happy. And, and contentment, small things. And a lot of people say, oh, yeah, but you have this and you have that. Stop comparing. Comparison is one of the worst things you can do to yourself. It's comparing yourself to others. It auto automatically makes you uh, doubt what you have and, and, and be ungrateful. So please, if you're listening, uh, understand and learn how to make yourself happy. Yourself. I always tell when women come up to me and say, I'm too scared of this. I can't be alone or I'm afraid. I always tell women, well, humans, people, travel alone. Pick up a bag. Pick up one bag. Put in it what you need and travel on your, on your own. If you are able to do a trip on your own, you yourself, and I, that's it, then you are emotionally stable enough to have a relationship and to move on in your life. Because if you can't even stay happy with yourself, how can you expect to stay happy with people, with someone else? 
So learn to be happy with who you are without the distractions of others, without any of these things that, 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 that pad, you know? And I think a lot of people now during the pandemic are faced with the reality of who they are. Do you know what I mean? Because they, they can't go out. They don't have, you know, office things. They are only stuck with themselves. So this really brings out the true um, colors of who you are. So please have an active, healthy relationship with fear and have an honest relationship with who you are and try to improve. We, we, we never stop improving. We, as humans, we're constantly trying and, and to learn and to improve is, is part of human nature. So I think sports that are like mountaineering and hiking and trailing uh, and travel really, really teach you a lot about who you are. It's more when people say, what, what do you like about mountaineering? I tell them, look, the views are amazing. The, 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 the actual adventure is amazing. But the journey within myself that I go through is, is far more uh, uh, rich to me than any, anything else. It really teaches you who you are. It really um, gives you, it holds up a mirror. Mountaineering, when you're stuck in the worst situation, it holds up a mirror of who you are. And then you can really be honest about yourself. Many people get this wrong. When I say, who do you spend most time with? And they point the finger, maybe husband, wife, but uh, very few people point at themselves. How, exactly. how good are you at spending time with yourself at your own company? How comfortable are you? How comfortable are you with who you really are? Can you, can you go and have a dinner, dinner on your own? Can you go to the movies on your own? Are you able to? Do you have the mental capacity to feel comfortable enough in silence? without a screen or a TV. This is, these are things that people are, are slowly losing, the sense of being comfortable and happy with who you are. They're slowly losing this. What will happen when we lose this? Are we losing the sense of ourselves, our um, sanity? Yeah, for sure. I think you lose something. I think when you are not able to um, be honest with yourself or be true to who you are, then you don't show the true color to people and hence it doesn't come off as genuine. It doesn't come off as caring. I think, I think people nowadays need to reconnect with their humanity. I think because of social media, because of being, everything has become fast. Everything has become um, quick and, you know, turnover is fast. They've kind of lost touch of what it means to make a human connection. And that in turn has made us a bit callous. So I really worry about the next generation. Um, they need to, we really need to keep an eye out to make sure that technology doesn't take out the humanity from humans. So normal, the state of being normal, is that the true enemy? No, I don't think look, being, being normal is something that can fit with uh, many people. But being bored is a dangerous place to be, for you to be bored in your life. I've met so many people that have smiling faces, but, but sad eyes. And when you talk to them or dig deeper and you find out what's bothering them, a lot of the problems are things that can, can be improved. There are, there are aspects of your life that we cannot control. Where you're born, your health, who you love and where you die are the four elements that you cannot control. But there are other things that you can't control. 
who you hang out with, where do you put your time, what type of job you do. And even that has limitations because I understand that a lot of people cannot choose the types of jobs they have. But you can choose things in your life that can improve the, the, the dailies, who you talk to. Um, so many people just waste. They, they, they waste. They, they, they go through life living and not alive. Do you know what I mean? They just they go through the notions, but they don't really feel what it means. A certain song that pops up in my mind when I think about your history is that there is a Swedish band called Olara, and they wrote a Swedish hit song. And the, the lyrics goes, I am the wilderness locked in a cage. I am a growing force you kept in place. I am a tree reaching for the sun. Please don't hold me down. Well, I shouldn't probably take I up can singing. I totally relate. <laughs> I can't sing. I can't sing to save my life, so I can't judge you. Uh, but but you get the lyrics. Of course you get sure, the lyrics. How it, does that resonate really, with you? Like as if the person knew me. I really feel like I, I've always had this force inside me that wanted to come out. And I feel like a lot of people have this force of nature that is fighting to get out. But we get programmed socially. We get programmed intellectually not to go after these passions and desires because it doesn't fit the mold. We, we, we kind of, we are our worst enemies. We, even before we start dreaming, you tell yourself, oh yeah, but I can't, but, but, and you put these aspects. And I faced this. I, when I wanted to climb, I said, yeah, but what about culture? But what about people? But what, but, but we, we tend to uh, doubt ourselves even before we had a chance to prove it. Um, and I really believe that we all have this, this thing inside us. And I often say that, um, I know not everybody can climb Everest that's in the Himalayas, but every single one of us has an Everest to climb. Every single human being has that mountain inside them that they are destined to climb. But you need to have the courage to find it. You need to have the courage to go after it. And uh, it, it, so, it's so many what ifs in life. So many people live with big what ifs. And I refuse to wake up one day and be one of those people that has more more things I've, that, that, that have regretted not doing things than the things that I could have done. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I, w I would rather regret the things I've done than the things I didn't do if I had to choose between one or the other. I'd rather not have regrets, but of course that's, it's, 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 uh, it's a rite of passage in life to have regrets. But if I had to choose, I'd rather regret the things I've done and, and have, a, have a full life that, that taught me things than a perfect life that just, didn't give me much, many lessons. How prevalent is this concept in Saudi? Saudi, again, it, because there's a very strong culture and a very uh, strong ideal of what a Saudi woman is, you have so many elements that you have to overcome before you even get to the point. So many people were saying, what was the most difficult mountain to climb? I told them, being able to actually go tell my family to go climb the mountain, that's, that's one of the most difficult mountains I had to climb because it was an emotional mountain for sure. So I think that Saudi in the last, let's say, four or five years, maybe six years, 
has drastically changed its view when it comes to women and empowerment drastically again i use myself as an example i was a outlaw i was not accepted i was not really celebrated as much i i was i there was a group of people of course that celebrated but the majority were like what is this girl doing but flash forward a few five six years now like i said i've, I've become more of a name as an exa- a positive example rather than a negative one so six years ago i was a negative example like don't be like this girl now it's like be like this girl <laughs> so you can clearly see um a shift uh in mentality it's not again we have a lot of traditions and culture that that need uh to to be re-understood let's say because i don't think there's anything wrong with a woman being athletic but but classically women seen who are athletic are not feminine but it's changing it's it's slowly going away so there's there's so much potential now and i'm so proud to be able to be in this age in my life where i can i ha- i have lived the before during and hopefully the after of this great great revolution in 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 the saudi mentality when it, in general there's a huge revolution now in, in evolution I, w- i should say a huge evolution in saudi arabia they opened up tourism they opened up sports it's been incredible uh, and also on a deeper level for women it, it's become really uh, an empowering drive for women in in in, in the kingdom hmm. children disregarding their gender have the prerogative in Scandinavia to train and compete in any sport of their liking. Uh, but for me, I come short of understanding how not having such opportunity must have felt. What I'm wondering is that how is it like to grow up as a woman in Saudi today with an adventurous disposition? Today, I think right now, I think it's the golden era of, of Saudi women and sports athleticism and ad, adventure. I think it's the golden era because there's so many undiscovered parts of Saudi Arabia, beautiful undiscovered parts of Saudi Arabia. Uh, there are lots of entities that are starting up uh, that are looking for young talent. Uh, I'm, I'm considered to be like the old school now. I'm too old, so I'm, I'm old news. But I'm proud to say that I paved the way for the new generation and what a way it is. And what a journey lies ahead of them. Like we, the generation before, I always say that the generation before me knocked on the door. My generation opened the door and the next generation need to walk through the door. So now is a great time to establish roots, to establish bases and sports, um, uh, sports culture. Uh, a, a, a sports culture in general. We, ha- we have basically football is the national sport, which is, it's normal that a lot of countries it's only football but now we've really um the hiking there's big a lot lots of clubs for hiking and climbing uh basketball um equestrian it's really really growing uh i did a travel show last year uh and i i interviewed lots of young ladies who are competing who want to be olympians with their father standing next to them it, it's really a, a, an amazing uh time and i'm so proud to be able to see this and yes i'm aware that this might be late but i would rather focus on the positive rather than the negative yes we we are late in many things but um evolving is always welcome regardless the glass is half full not half empty i agree on that i I choose i choose because a lot of people criticize and i get the criticism and i respect the criticism but 
you know, you when someone's trying to reform, when someone's trying to improve themselves, it doesn't help them to say, oh, now you started. And this is how I feel about a lot of the, the negative media in, in, in parts of the world that, that look at Saudi and say, yeah, they're like, yeah, okay, but we are really, really offering so much potential for the next generation. And I, I choose to see it as a positive thing. And I don't want to dwell on the negativities of the past. I, this is my personal choice. I choose to, to be positive and to look forward, learn from the past, not dwell on them. How do you handle criticism? Oh, I have a very interesting view about being criticized. <laughs> I've been criticized a lot in my career. I've been criticized heavily. Uh, and sometimes it gets to me. I have to admit, I have very, very thick skin. You have to understand, I grew up with two siblings older than me. I had horrible hair. I had buck teeth, braces, headgears, and retainers. I was skinny. I, I, you didn't, I, I was one of those girls that you didn't know what gender I was because I was so skinny. And I, I couldn't handle my, my, my hair. My hair was just, this, just to give you an idea about how much of a disaster my hair was. My nickname was Medusa growing up because I had such unruly hair that was all over the place. So I grew up with siblings that made fun of me, that picked on me. And <laughs> I, I grew up having thick skin. So when I tell you that sometimes it got to me, it really got to me. Sometimes when they uh, uh, attacked my family, it really hurt me. Uh, but my relationship with criticism is this. If a person is, who's standing in front of me criticizes the fact that I'm a Saudi mountain climber that has climbed Everest and the seven summits, I respect his or her opinion. I don't have to agree with them. But no matter what they do, they cannot take away the fact that I achieved this. And I have a space in their brain about my achievements. I'm renting space in their head. And that space will forever be a little nudge in their mind that I exist as a Saudi woman who is an adventure and athlete. So even if they criticize me, and trust me, I get criticized a lot. I'm happy they know I exist. I'm happy that they know that a woman could achieve these, a, a woman in general, but specifically a Saudi woman can climb the seven summits of the world, must in some way shake their belief in what a woman can do. So whenever I get criticism, I try to look at it that way. I'm sure there are listeners out there who need some lesson in applying this super ability, this superpower to their life because Sometimes criticism acts like adherent, something sticky that doesn't wash oh, off you. easily. It uh, gets you sometimes, yeah. How do you practice it? If you were a um, teacher, a sensei, what would be your three-step program to become a superhero person managing criticism? I, I can't tell, I, would, I don't think I could be a sensei because there are days that get to me and I just want to throw my phone from my window and never see, I, I get, because sometimes you work on something so hard and then one silly comment really gets you the wrong way. <laughs> so I can't say I can be a master, but I can, I can be an apprentice. And the best advice I would give to the people who are listening when it comes to criticism, it's criticism let them be steps in your life, not walls and not wait. So whenever you get a criticism, put it below your feet and step above it and so on and so forth. Don't let it be a brick that you carry. 
let it be a brick that you lay, that you can use to rise above, if that makes any sense. If they criticize you, try to take it as, as, as that person's view of you and not everybody else's. Because you, you will never be able to make everybody happy. And if you make everybody happy, you're not, what you're doing is not, you know, it doesn't have enough meaning. Um, and whenever people say, how can you handle criticism? I tell them, listen, everything in life has pros and cons. And everybody has a different view. Something as simple as vanilla ice cream. You have people who wouldn't even eat vanilla ice cream or lacto or hate ice cream. Pick the most simplest thing in life, water. People will criticize the types of water you drink, how much water you drink. Everything in life gets criticized, including us. So try to, to, to take it as much as you can as uh, constructive criticism when it is constructive, but when it's just downright mean, put it below your feet and rise above it. That's it. Don't give it to, don't let it, again, don't let them rent space in your brain. Very good life it's not lessons. Easy. Very it's good not life easy. Lessons. It's not easy. Trust me. Sometimes I get messages. Okay, because I refuse. I I refuse to 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 fit the mold that a lot of people want of me physically. Okay, uh, when I get comments that your hair is too puffy or your nose is too big or your lips are too small, this really bothers me because you you are imposing the 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 person is imposing their view of beauty on me, and I refuse to fit that that mold. Why do I have to look like everybody else? And then when I get comments like this on my social media, I have a lot of young girls that are followers that get affected by these messages. When they see someone like me who's in the news and in TV getting criticized, they also, this hurts them too. So that really, that kind of criticism, I feel is one of the worst. It's criticizing someone's looks. I didn't, ma I didn't make myself. I, I, I didn't have any say in, in how I came out. So. I feel like that's a very uh, harsh um, line. Like you can criticize someone's actions. You can criticize someone's fashion. And I, again, I still think that's also within certain uh, uh, limits, right? It's still within certain limits. But going around and criticizing, criticizing someone's physical appearance is the lowest of the low. So sometimes I get messages about my hair <laughs> that they want me to blow dry my hair. And I just don't understand. You, you are so bored. This person that comments about my hair, you're so bored that you had to message, you had to take time to type and say that you hate my hair or my nose. Oh my God, they have problems with my nose because it's not done by Dr. Joseph in I don't know what clinic, right? So they get very frustrated about how I look. And I get really sad because a lot of these are young girls that probably don't love the way they look either. So I always tell girls, embrace, embrace the, the things that make you uniquely who you are. Don't let anyone dictate what beauty is to you. Because guess what? Beauty is in the eye of a beholder. Nobody, nobody we all have different tastes. We all have different uh, uh, you know, preferences. So don't follow the fashion of trying to look like someone else. Be the best version of you. Be the best original. Don't be a cheap copy. Please, girls, whenever you get these kind of negativity, sorry, I went off topic completely, but whenever you hear these, these negative things about how you look, remind yourself that, you know, these people are probably um, 
reflecting their own hate of themselves. So don't fall under the trap of thinking you need to look like X person or Y celebrity. Please don't. Mm. Sorry, uh, rant over, rant over. Okay. I think that the approach <laughs> I have is that criticism is breakfast for champions. That's the first thing. Exactly. The second thing it's is easy. that whenever I am hit by criticism, I think that if it's unjustified, I just reason that there are people who have just too much time in their life. Yeah. And Way too much should, time. Perhaps they should just focus on something constructive. And I try to just soak it up, beat myself up, and then get over it and continue with my path. Something that I am concerned about, I don't have the empirical statistics backing up my observation, but this is something to me that it seems that people in general are predestined to settle for less. People are comfortable, and I always advocated for the mantra, facing my fears. And the approach has boosted me to do uncomfortable things, which I think is the way forward to sharpen the diamond. What do you think it would take in order to humans waking up tomorrow and stop quitting on their New Year Eve resolution and, and never settle for less? I think the pandemic and the fact that lots of things have been taken away from us really put things in perspective. The amount of people that I that my around me that say, Oh, I wish I took that trip. Oh, I wish I did that is incredible. The amount of people that regret things that they didn't do is because now a lot of things are, are not available. A lot of things are limited. So do not let the opportunity pass you and remind yourself that not every life is not a given opportunities are not a given and time is not promised to you. Remember that if you remind yourself that tomorrow is not promised, I guarantee you, you will not procrastinate. It's very harsh. It's very morbid, but you need to re be reminded that tomorrow is not promised to you. The only thing that's promised is the moment you're standing in right now. Everything else is up for debate. Would you say that you become more patient? in regards to spending a lot of time on expedition, waiting and enduring harsh storms and waiting for a summit bid? So for sure, it made me patient. It gave me patience in things and it took away my patience from others, other things. For example, I'm, I, it really made me patient in, ter in terms of waiting for things to, to happen or waiting for things to, to, to evolve, right? But it's really mountaineering and the things I went through in my um, sports career or in my, in my the last couple of years really took away my, pa my patience with rude people, with uh, uh, selfish behavior. With, it really made me, I have zero tolerance for such things. Zero. Like if, if I see someone cutting the line, I will tell them, please, you do not cut the line. Where before I would have been a little bit more hesitant to say when I see someone who's well I've always been very outspoken but now now I'm even more outspoken I think I think mountaineering has given me the courage to truly truly be who I am uh, and a champion for justice even when it's small things if I see someone misbehaving with an animal oh uh, make you will know 
exactly how I think about that. So it really took away my patience when it comes to horrible, lazy behavior. It may be a little bit harsh, a little bit when it comes to that, but it gave me patience in other aspects for sure. Kilimanjaro was your first mountain. And it, it all started with the fact that you met this woman who had great impact on you. She told you about Kilimanjaro. You weren't aware at the time what Kilimanjaro was. Uh, no, it was so a mountain. <laughs> I thought it was a fruit. I swear, I thought it was a fruit. I'm, I'm such an idiot. So uh, the story is I was sitting with, a, this was during the time when my family was kind of pressuring me to go back into Saudi and find a husband and settle down. It was that kind of pressure. And then randomly I heard a girl uh, mention that she's going to climb uh, Kilimanjaro. And then when I researched and I found the company that she was going with, the wife of the owner, who's, who was also an owner, uh, we became friends. And she became one of the biggest inspirations when it comes to mountaineering because she took me, we went gear shopping. I went with her on my first uh, hi uh, hike, which was Everest Base Camp. She really inspired me. Uh, her name is Marwa Faid. Uh, she, she was married to uh, the first Egyptian to climb Everest, Omar Samra. And Marwa is, is one of the most genuine souls and most genuine human beings I've ever met. Uh, but unfortunately, as all some of some of the greatest people in life leave this earth early, she passed away really young, a couple of years ago. And her 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 effect on me and the passion she had for adventure and mountaineering, I carry with me every single mountain I go to. So I really hold a lot uh, to her and to Omar, uh, who took my hand literally. Like the first time I went to buy my first climbing boots, she went with me. I really appreciate that. And this is a great example of what mentorship is, how important it is for people to help others, for, for us to pull each other up and not push each other down. And I really owe a lot to her, uh, God rest her soul, and Omar for, for starting my career. Uh, Marwa and Omar suggested me to, to the, the Princess Lima bin Bandar uh, who, who sponsored a, the first 10 women to go to base camp. And I was selected because of Omar and Marwa. And that kind of kick-started my career. So you have these people in life that really inspire you. And I, I, I really, I take, I, I, I'm very grateful for the opportunity, opportunity to get to know Marwa. And I'm very sad uh, till this day that she is no longer with us. But uh, I hope that I can have a, a little hand in carrying her legacy forward because she really was instrumental in, in getting my mountaineering career up and running. Mm. Sorry to hear that. Uh, best people leave early, we say in Arabic. The best people leave the earth early. Uh, she was an incredible human being. So it's really, if, if, if you're listening and you have someone that you can mentor, even one person, if you can help one person, it will enrich you in a way that very few things can help others. And it will really, really uh, uh, leave, leave you with a legacy you might not have ever imagined. So when you pass away, what would your legacy be? You know, I, I, I've often thought about this, but I've, I, I can't think of a better way of expressing what my legacy is other than the fact that 
I want to be the, remembered as the woman who lived her life. I don't care about people knowing my name or, what I, or the achievements or the records. I want my legacy to be, uh, you know, that the, the Saudi woman that lived her dreams. And if I can inspire others to live theirs, then that would be the legacy I want to, to, to die with. I always say that I, before I leave, before I, 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 I leave this earth, I want to be uh, aware of a society that has not a single first for women. I want every single first to be non-existent. And then we can start the journey of equality. When we don't have the first Saudi woman, this first, I want it to be the, um, when they say Saudi, they don't have to say man or woman. Saudi wins gold in the Olympics. And it doesn't have to differentiate. Do you know what I mean? I don't want them to say the first Saudi woman to win the Olympics or the first Saudi woman to be the head of or the first Saudi woman to be X, Y, Z. I want that to be eradicated. Once we've, we have removed the firsts, because men have removed the firsts, what's left now is very few things like the, the first people to go to Mars and discovering the oceans. But it's, it's no longer become a gender thing, right? When, when things happen in, in, in other parts of the world, it, it's rare that it's a woman or a man. We have very few of them left. I want those to be extinct. And then, and then the story changes. Jumping from one thing to the next, this is very essential no and important <laughs> that you mentioned. And uh, I'm very glad you brought this up. But jumping back to Kilimanjaro and back to your family, you said the decision to go to Kilimanjaro was also part of pissing your family off. Was that because, <laughs> was that because <laughs> you did not comply with your mom who <laughs> thought you were going to choose a prince coming yeah. riding on a horse <laughs> and savor you and uh, succumb to a traditional lifestyle? Uh, okay, was so that disclaimer, the this Disclaimer, before I say this sentence, my mom always she fights with me. She says, say the sentence first. Okay, so disclaimer, I'm not against marriage. I would love to get married one day. I'm not one of those people that is like, no, I'm not going to get, I would love to. But I think it should happen in the right time with the right person. And, and when I was being pressured to come back and find a husband, I wasn't ready. I didn't feel like I was ready. So I wanted to, to, to do something that was mine. And yes, I wanted to piss them off a little bit. And what better way to drive them crazy than to go to, to climb the, the highest mountains in the world? <laughs> they were telling me marriage and I was telling them mountains. So yes, I have to be honest and say that, yeah, I was, I was trying in a way to be rebellious and get what I want. And uh, my mom, whenever she hears my interviews, she says, mention that you are not against marriage. I'm not. I think it's a beautiful thing when it's the right person at the right time, but uh, it has to be the right person and the right circumstance. It can't just be like, oh, I woke up today and decided to get married. So please, for those who are listening, and I'm sure mom, you're going to listen to this at some point, I mentioned happy. <laughs> Very good advice for all of those who are aspiring for mountains. <laughs> don't forget the normal part too. <laughs> you don't have to choose like a lot of people say that did you feel like you have to choose between uh you know traditional life and adventure you certainly don't have to choose i would love to one day have little knees that drive me crazy as much as i drove my parents crazy with a partner 
kung, if I tell him, hey, let's go hike uh, in you know, the Himalayas or let's go to Mount Fuji, he'll say, when do, I, when do we leave? I would love that. You don't have to choose between one or the other. You don't have to choose between um, your personal life uh, and family and being a badass adventurer. You don't have to choose. And I, I, I always, I often tell people like they, they assume just because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a mountaineer and I have a, a big love of adventure and going outdoors and they think I'm not feminine. I, I promise you, if you saw me in the mall or in the street, you would never believe that I'm the same person. I, I'm 98% in dresses. I wear high heels. Uh, I only wear shoes when I'm training. Uh, I'm very feminine. I'm extremely feminine in my life, but that femininity goes out the window when I'm climbing and I'm, there's snot coming down my nose and I haven't showered in 22 days. And that's another thing my mom fights. She does not believe that I didn't shower for 22 days, but yeah, uh, 22 days in Denali was the longest. I didn't take a shower, mama, I'm sorry. But uh, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a bit of an animal. It's just part of being human. It's okay. You can, you can be both. You can be a feminine in, in high heels and then wear las portivas and, and, and live on the mountain. You don't have to choose, girls. I promise you, you don't. Well, life is a, like a roller coaster. I prefer going down very fast and then quick up. And I guess the yeah. contrast, contrast makes the life. But I'm exactly. curious about where your propensity for adventures all started. I know that <laughs> it was ignited by the fact you had this conversation and decided for Kilimanjaro. But can you recall a moment in time where you were absolutely flabbergasted, where you were, so to speak, in, initiated by the thought that adventures, mountains, this is it. Where were you and what was going around you at the time? I grew up watching these amazing shows in National Geographic and Discovery Channel and these people that go on. And I dreamt of being that person. I literally wanted to be that, that adventurer person. Uh, I never imagined that I'd get there. And the, my big aha moment, like they say, or my big epiphany was when I got to uh, uh, the first... Uh, the, okay, so for those of you who haven't climbed Kili, Kilimanjaro, there's different routes, and one of the most famous routes is Machame. And right before you get to the summits, the summit, which is called Uhuru, the summit of, of uh, Kili is called Uhuru, there is a, a point called Stella Point, which is a part where people, where, uh, uh, like a flat area where people rest. Before I got to Stella Point, I, was, uh, I had snow blindness, so I couldn't see. Uh, the, the water in my eyes froze over. I couldn't see. I couldn't see my surroundings. I, I was literally holding onto the backpack in front of me and the person behind me was, behind me was holding my backpack. But I could feel the sun rays because it was in the morning. I could feel the sun. So I, my face was following the sun like a sunflower. And by the time I got to, to Stella Point, um, the, mel the ice melted and I could see where I was. And, and that image is forever like engraved in my heart and mind. The clouds were below me and they looked like waves crashing like ocean waves crashing but frozen in time and i was seeing that with my own eyes and that's when it hit me and that's when this belief this sense of purpose and belonging hit me like nothing else and it was amazing for me to feel like i belong there even though i live in the middle east and i come from a very flat part of the country of the world i felt like i belonged 
And it was a very strange feeling to be able to recognize a place, a feeling, even though I've never done that before. And that was the moment for me. That was the moment it changed. And that was the moment the sense of adventure, the sense of purpose was ignited. It was always there. It was always a little voice in the back of my head, but it screamed at the top of its lungs when I got to that point and I felt what I felt and I saw what I saw. And I could never unsee and unfeel that. And that's been the driving force of my life. I've always wanted to be an adventurer, but it was rediscovered that moment up on the mountains. It was rediscovered that moment. I must say that you're not the only person who had this epiphany and revelation on Kilimanjaro. I'm sure. Back in the days, on 1998, that was my first wow, trip to Kilimanjaro. Wow, you went in 98? Yes, I'm old. <laughs> yeah, no, you're not. No, or, you're not. Or wise. <laughs> You're just a few years older than me. But I remember it so clearly, so stark. Uh, I got to Gilman's point and uh, I started to cry. Uh, it came from nowhere. As yes, I watched you, the clouds beneath me, they turned red and this was the sun. Yes. And I could yes, start exactly. seeing the planes below my feet and I cried yes. out loud to every person that was crossing me. I cried out, this is love. And then I cried more and I said, this is love. And I cried more probably for around 10 or 10 or 15 minutes. In retrospect, I, I, know how you feel. <laughs> I, I, I honestly believe that people must have thought, was, what was he smoking? <laughs> well, <laughs> but, or hypoxia or maybe a combination, hypoxia. but it was, it was neither. I was perfectly acclimatized and I felt great apart from the obnoxious abdominal pain that I had from three consecutive oh days of diarrhea. Uh, but That's horrible. You had an interesting feeling on Kilimanjaro. It felt so familiar to you. You it said did. this in quotes several times. What was this familiar feeling? It felt like if you belonged or did it felt like you'd been there before in past lives? I'm curious because for me, it, it was it this did. revelation. It felt like I'm coming home. Exactly. It felt like I was always meant to go there. It felt like I was always meant to get to that point. And if we don't go outside our comfort zone, we will never discover these things. If I was too afraid to ask for that mountain, if I, was, if I didn't have the enough courage to, to, to go against the, the norm, to go against what's expected, I wouldn't have found that moment. And life is full of these moments that really redefine who you are. That was a redefining moment for me. I felt like I belonged in that moment as much as I knew my name and, and who I am. It just felt a part of me. And again, I'm from Jeddah. I'm from the Middle East. Like this is not, you know, part of my, my I don't, I, I, as far as I know, my, my, my extended family have always been in, in this part of the world. We, we, we don't have, um, I did the 23andMe thing. We don't really have lots of ancestors that are outside of the region. But I really felt that sense of belonging and purpose uh, like I've never felt before. And since every time I climb, every time I, uh, I, I reach a summit, it's that same feeling that I was meant to be there. This was yeah. not the last time that you were infatuated by a mountain. When you saw Everest for the first time, you declared that you were going to climb it. So Certainly not like <laughs> this this assertiveness does that come from merely seeing the mountain its beauty or 
about the knowledge that it is the tallest mountain on earth or both? I think it, I think it's a combination of many things, but in my case as well, I, I saw Everest in books and TV and pictures and all that. Uh, and you see it from far away, you see it from different angles. But uh, at some point when I was doing Everest Base Camp, uh, you, go, you, you have to go around and run around many of the mountains, smaller mountains to get to base or to get to Tengbushe, uh, Lamushe, the small towns all up the mountain. And one of those days we were getting to base camp and I saw Everest from the specific point, vantage point that struck me like lightning. And I, I, I could feel the sense of pull it was pulling me, that mountain was pulling me. My mom always jokes and she really, she laughs so hard. And she, she says, she always says that, Eraha, I hope one day you look at a man, same way you looked at that mountain because you were in love. And she's right because I fell in love with the idea of being a Saudi woman that can climb the highest mountain in the world or even attempt it or even just try. And, I, and, and that was when the whole Seven Summits idea came up. I, I, prior to that, I wasn't even thinking of seven summits, but once that mountain called me and a lot of people say this, that the mountain calls you and it's so corny and cliche and yeah, I know, but I don't know any other way of expressing it. It felt like a pull well, and I followed the, it. The decision must have felt and seemed tangible because you gave yourself one year, only one year yeah. in preparation to climb it. Because I knew in a way my father was, doesn't have the, the, the patience to wait for longer than that. Like I had a feeling that if I pushed more, he would be like, no, like you're crazy. So I gave myself just one year, just one. How was your preparation going? You must have trained almost every single day. And also, almost. secondly, how do you train in a desert for the tallest mountain exactly. in the world? <laughs> Good question. Okay, I'll start um, with a more simpler one. Um, I, 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 I contacted climbing companies and I made my, I, my, my interest in wanting to climb the mountain aware. Of course, can you imagine this, like this is a few years ago, emailing one of the top uh, climbing agencies in the U.S. saying, hi, my name is Ram from Saudi Arabia. I did... Kilimanjaro and Everest Base Camp, and I want to do Everest next year. <laughs> I don't think they took it seriously. Uh, and then when I started like really bugging them about it, uh, I I got an honest answer. They said that you don't have enough experience. Here, a list of mountains you can climb. I told them I need to climb it in a year, so they gave me the list of mountains that I can climb in that one year. So I did around eight mountains, six or eight mountains in twelve months to prepare myself. Um, and by the time I got to Everest, like I said, I was completely broke. Like I couldn't even buy the, the, the rest of the gear. And, um, when my boots arrived, um, before I went to training, uh, it was the holy month of Ramadan. My boots arrived from Nepal and I had to break them in. So what do you do when you live in Saudi Arabia? It's really hot because it was summer. You need to break in triple La Sportiva Olympus Mount. Like, how, how do you do that? So I used to wear them up and down the stairs in the house. Like, I used to go, like, boog, boog, boog. And anyone that wore, wore La Sportiva knows that you walk like a penguin, like, when you have them on. So I was wearing them with a skirt in my mom's house during the holy month with all the family and everyone was just like, what is this girl doing? And then I got bored of wearing them up and down the stairs in the house. 
So I started putting on the abaya, the traditional uh, black robe, and I go to the mall and I walk around the mall because it was cooler than walking outside looking like a penguin. Hilarious. But yeah, that was one way of training, breaking your boots. But no one captured you. you and brought you to the hospital for an exam, did they? I mean, I, I think they wanted to. I think my parents knew that I was breaking them in, but the rest of my family was like, uh, what's she doing? And, um, and then I had, to, I had to condition. In addition to breaking in my boots, I had to, I had to wear, wear the backpack. And I didn't have enough money for anything. So I had my backpack. My other boots, my, my smaller boots, uh, not the last part, like smaller hiking boots, I would ask the driver, uh, because women didn't drive at the time, would drive me like an hour and a half, or sometimes two hours out of town to go to like this big plain area, uh, a little bit hilly. And I had my backpack, my boots, a bag, a garbage bag, and I would put sand inside the garbage bag and then I would add five kilos every week or so. That's it. Like, I didn't have any fancy gear. I didn't have any of that. And then when gym started becoming more acceptable, I started to go to the gym. So <laughs> you can imagine. Did any friends accompany you or were you all your own in the desert? No, on my own. On oh. my own. I would just go. I would have a water. I, I wouldn't go far. So I would know where the car is. I would just try to go around. You, you need conditioning. You need to be able to wear the shoes, the backpack. Uh, because one of the best things you can pre prevent from happening is, is blisters or soreness from backpacks and shoes. So you really need to condition yourself. Um, so I, I, had to, I had to figure out a way to condition my body, right? And that was the only way I could do it. <laughs> That's it. No fancy stuff, nothing. That's all I had. And, um, and that just goes to show you, like, if there's a will, there's a way. Like, if you really want something, if you really truly believe in it, um, you could be a woman in the desert in the Middle East and still train to climb the highest mountains in the world. Did it occur to you that being that solitude, working up and down with this firm and stark goal and uh, not being surrounded by people who are all like and who are encouraging and perhaps can push you and understand your goals and the territory that you're walking did you understand how mentally fit you were at the time and how much mental fitness you were practicing at the time? I was aware that it was a big part of conditioning is also your mentality and uh, your ability to control your emotions and these things. So if, I was aware, but I, I didn't realize it was that much of an important thing to do because again, I, I, I had to climb lots of mountains to gain that experience. By the time I got to Everest, for sure, I, know, I knew exactly what, what was needed. But in the beginning of the, my mountaineering career, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just learning as I go. And please, anyone who's listening, uh, if you ever need advice, if you're from the region or, or, or anything, uh, contact people that are passionate, like uh, us too. Like Contact the people that can help you and find the, the way to your dreams a lot of people message and say oh i want to climb everest and that's it but i tell them okay have you done mountaineering have you done hiking they say no it doesn't work that way guys you really need to put in the time and you really need to put in the the training because you would be a liability for everybody else yourself and yeah 
Well, well I have this story that is uh, a bit amusing, and uh, it's from when I was in. Are you there, Raha? I'm here. Yeah. Sweet, you're breaking up a little bit. Yes, they're perfect. I have this story that is a bit amusing, but it also gives perspective. And I think it's a good lesson in motivation. And when I was in Nepal 2005, I got acquainted with uh, a local porter and I told him where my climbing career started. And it was Kebnekaise, which is the highest mountain in Sweden. It's not very tall, it's 2,117 meters tall. But as I said this, he, he, he didn't say a word. He was stunned. But after a while, I approached him and, are you okay? I said, yes, yes, Frederick. Uh, 2,117 meters. I've never been so low in li life, he said. <laughs> and uh, he wasn't dreaming about high mountains. As a matter of fact, he was more fascinated and more interested in how does it feel swimming in an ocean? He couldn't swim. The lake yeah. or oh, wow. streams are desperately cold in the regions, but he was uh, more interested talking about, you know, sailing and swimming and fishing, because what I pictured in my head when I heard this and is that perhaps sometimes the greatest motivation is not having this immediate access to the mountains that you need in order to climb big mountains. Perhaps lack of it also fosters your mental strength. So what I'm wondering here is that lacking mountains could have somehow boosted your mental strength? I think we always want what we don't have. We always crave the things that we don't have, right? Like I, I, it becomes like an obsession because you don't have it. So yeah, for sure. I think the fact that I, I didn't have this and the fact that people kept telling me you can't do it was one of the most um, biggest fuel for me. The more they told me you can't, the more I said, well, watch me. So yeah, for sure. I think these things really affect um, and, and give you a boost in, in, in trying to get to where you want. When people say to you that they want to climb Everest, you basically reply with the question, why? And you say that yeah. they can't give you an answer. Uh, furthermore, you emphasize that figuring out the why is paramount before attempting a climb. Do you think that George Lee Mallory's infamous response to the question, why, was because, because it's there. there, is that enough of a reply? That was his why. He, he wanted to climb it because it was there, because it exists. That's his why. When, 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 when things went bad and they were stuck in a situation, that why is going to come back and bite you in the ass. So make sure that you know that what, the, what the why is. I wanted to climb because I wanted to prove to myself that I can climb, that I can get to my dreams, that no, that no gender bias, no nationality, no... No, nothing can stop me from being or achieving my dream. That was my why. And that's the why that came out when things got really difficult. So you really need to have a strong why. When you say I want to, you want to climb because it's cool. Oh, trust me. When you are in, you know, really bad situation, we wanting to climb something because it's cool is not going to help you. 
You need to have a stronger conviction. You want to climb because it's a dream of yours since you were a child. Go ahead. You want to climb because it, it helps you achieve this and that. Go ahead. But make sure that the, that the why is, is strong enough to get you through the, t- the tough days and not just a superficial reason or, a, or, or worse, a, a, a uh, what do you call it? A, um, an ego project just to brag that you climbed it. Are there too many of those people, you think? Look, I try not to judge anyone's motives because I, I really, I'm an open-minded person, but from time to time, I come across people that uh, they want to climb it for the fame and they say, if I climb it, I'm going to get more, exp-. and they actually say it, so that's their purpose. I, I respect it, but I don't think that's enough of a, a reason because it's such an expensive, dangerous thing and you want to do it for the fame or whatever silly reason you want to do. But again, to each his own. If that's why you want to climb the mountain, then go ahead. I I, I wish you best of luck. But um, doing things for ego uh, don't feed your soul. They, They just inflate your ego. So always try to find a purpose and passion in what you do. It, it shouldn't just be something for the sake of bragging. How was it standing on top of Everest? You know, as much as people ask me this question, I can never answer it. And I think you know the same feeling. You, can't, you can never describe that sense of accomplishment when it, when it, it takes two, two months to actually climb the mountain and then all the training, all the heartache. And for me personally, all the negativity and all the things that were standing in my way, for me to be able to finally stand on top of that mountain with my own two feet was, I, I, I'll take it to my grave that sense. I felt, I always say that I felt simultaneously huge and tiny at the same time because I felt massive that I achieved my dreams but I felt small that I was a speck of dust that the wind would blow because the mountain is so mighty and we are so frail in, in, the, in, in the grand scheme of things. But it really, really made me believe that, uh, you know, standing on that mountain and then finishing the seven, it, it really made me believe that we are capable of incredible things. As humans, we have the potential to do unbelievable things, but we, we, if we lack the courage to to go after our dreams then you live half a life um so it's really i can never express (laughs) i just felt um yeah i overwhelmingly happy i also felt honestly quite stinky and very hungry and uh i was like also a bit like nervous and worried because all i could think about was Majority of people die on the way down, majority of people. So I was thinking, okay, don't celebrate completely until you are safe. So that was also in the back of my head. Um, so I, I was happy. I celebrated, but I really made it swift. Said a prayer. Uh, was very grateful um, that me, me, teeny weeny little me from Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, could, uh, you know, one foot on, in front of the other, be able to stand on such a mighty, beautiful uh, creation as that mountain because we are guests on them those mountains you never you never really conquer them i i get a bit shy when people say i've conquered it because i don't really think i've conquered it you know uh, someone said that uh it's the mount it's the mountains within that you conquer um not the actual mountain 
and I truly believe that. So it's really hard for me, long answer, but yeah, it's very hard for me to express how it felt, but it felt pretty fantastic to prove people wrong from on top of the world. If I can be a little bit, a little bit cheeky, a little bit arrogant, a little bit, it felt really, really good to stand on top of the world and, you know, tell all those people who stood in front of me and, and, and belittled me that, guess what, you know, Saudi girl made it. I think we needed a pause because um, that was so beautifully put. I'm still on the top of Mount Everest with you. It's, oh. um, it, it's, um, it's a view to behold. And as you said and pointed out, it's only halfway. And sometimes people forget it that. It is. People the forget that. The strangest part is coming down. They're you know, overwhelmed. It, they get overwhelmed and then they think, you know, reaching the mountain. But hey, you still have exactly half to go down. Like you're halfway. The summit is halfway, people. The summit is halfway. Remember that. When you get to the summit, it's halfway. Yeah. As Ed Wiesters once pointed out, that getting to the top is optional. Getting down is mandatory. And yes, I think that exactly. any fool, any fool can that? make Ed Wiesters, Ed Wiesters, first oh, yes, yes, American yes. to climb all 48,000 yes. meter peaks. Yeah, amazing quotes and so true. And I think that any fool can make it to top, but getting down, that's where you've yeah. got to kick in your superpowers. And that's where and that's what I always listen. tell people. You check, you check your ego at, at base camp. Like you check your ego, you leave your ego back home. Like you really need to leave your ego back home because a lot of um, people get summit fever and then ego kicks in and then it, it's just terrible. Um, the amount of lives we've lost and accidents that could have been avoided. Of course, there are perils to the mountains that you cannot control, like avalanches and people falling and people getting hurt. That's also terrible. But when people walk to their deaths because they were too arrogant to realize that they're not strong enough is, is hor a horrible way to go. Something no that way. I would touch on is your charity program that you initiated in Nepal. And that was part of your Mount Everest climb. And I particularly sympathize with educational programs since it has, in my opinion, outstanding benefits over merely supporting rebuilding projects, etc. I think that it was really cool. I was invited to be part of it by uh, Mohammed Al Thani, who was a teammate. It was his initiative, so I loved being part of it. I was very proud to to, to lend my name to it. Um, it was uh, only for that climb, though. I unfortunately I wish it was for more climbs, but it was only for that climb. But now I do uh, what I call responsible traveling or to be a responsible tourist. This is, if you are curious to know what that is, please follow me on social media, on my Instagram. It's really easy, Raham Harrak, uh, R-A-H-A-M-O-H-A-R-R-A-K. Uh, and it's being a, a responsible human or a responsible tourist. So whenever I travel to these places around the world, I try to highlight uh, uh, his, historic things, of course, which is really common, but I also try to, to leave something better than how I, I, I found it. So everywhere I go, I try to, to find a problem or donate or uh, highlight an issue. Um, it started with my trip to Uganda a few years ago. Um, uh, it started actually because I used to throw big birthday parties, I'm very social, so I used to have big birthday parties and then I, kind of hated how the birthdays became like superficial. So with the same amount of money I, I throw the birthday, I would travel to a place and try to help someone. So it started with Uganda and uh, we found a, 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 a um, oh my God, what's the word in English? Um, 
orphanage, a mini orphanage, a very small orphanage uh, in one of the slums that needed uh, a roof for the girls, for, their, for the girls to sleep in. And uh, I helped raise the money to build that. That's something very small. It's not huge. It will not heal the world. It will not cure hunger. But I guarantee you, those 12 girls who sleep with the roof now, their life has changed. Just small things like that. Uh, when I went to Kenya, I went and I highlighted the pro bono eye hospital, uh, the Lions Hospital um, in Kenya, in uh, Nairobi, which was really an honor to be able to highlight this. Something as simple as, I think it was 200 or $300 to help give sight, uh, help cure cataracts. Small things like that, traveling as a responsible person. It's really cool to travel to all the, the, the famous places, but if you have the time and the money, try to highlight issues that might not get the attention. Mm. I think um, I believe in doing uh, small things with big love. And, and that's my, I think my, my mini big project that I do from time to time. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I digress, but yeah, <laughs> I, I try as much as I can to do, to help, even if it's not a very big thing. And I sympathize. I agree. And I try to become more and more of that kind of person because we live on a finite planet with finite resources. So yeah. in order to live sustainably and also leave the place in better shape than we first encountered when we was brought to earth, I think that uh, induces a sort of uh, legacy and also a deep sense of moral that gives you purpose in life and meaning because what is better meaning than protecting the and the well-being of all sentient beings for me exactly. that is just as important as my personal goals and some of the places that definitely need some attention is uh, the big mountains because they're becoming more and more littered uh, litter and garbage and yeah. getting more and more polluted what's your there's 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 a two a, a two-edged uh, sorry go ahead. go ahead what's your take on this how can we improve the education in people who are not accustomed to deal with recycling and sustainable issues as we are in yeah. our part of the it's, world it's for sure a, a huge, a huge uh, responsibility that falls on the the the, uh, the um, mountaineering outlets and governments that run these beautiful mountains. It, you need to hold people accountable. Um, a great example is uh, Denali um, in in Alaska. Uh, they have lots of laws and lots of rules. If you break, you pay a fine. So there needs to be accountability to littering. There needs to be accountability to, as an individual, you get fined if you do this or you get, this needs to happen to protect uh, the mountains. And I've, I'm sure you've, you've experienced climbing a mountain where you can't even find clean snow around the camp because people just defecate everywhere or people just throw their stuff everywhere. Um, so I think it's, a, it's an individual responsibility for sure. Mm. Well, speaking about the knowledge. It's sword. The fact, the fact that... The fact that they bring, the, it's a two-edged sword because it brings in money and business for the people, but at the same time, it brings in more people that 
that are, can litter. So it, there needs to be a control and balance. You know yeah. what I mean? And we need to uh, propagate this message to as many pop people as possible so they are not only aware of the problem, but also we can tell them and teach them what necessary steps to be taken. And I think something that people just need to get in their head is that what you bring in, you bring out. Very simple. But exactly. it seems to be a There are tendency. a few things that you, 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 cannot, you cannot control. Like there are a few things like uh, peeing, okay, because it's water. But you can still know where to go. You still respect where you pee. Mm. Um, small things. So, uh, remove the wrappers of the things before you get on the mountain. This is something that really bothers me. It really bothers me when I go on the mountain and I'm about to climb and I see my teammate with all the wrappers. You're going to eat them. Remove them all, put them in a Ziploc bag, and that's it. That, that already takes away the little plastic. Speaking about Denali and Seven Summits, Denali was a life-changing episode in your life. <laughs> you um, oh, yes. tried it a couple of times. But it took Twice. a year for you to get back on your horse after being victim for PTSD. Would you? It took me two. Wow. <laughs> it took me two years. <laughs> What happened? Yes. Yeah, so uh, Denali. Okay. So it's really okay. So this is uh, we have to end on a positive. So after Denali, we have to end on a positive note, right? We cannot. End we will. Denali, we will. Right? Promise. Affirmative. Okay. So Denali, I, 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 I was already in. Ecuador. I was training in Ecuador and Peru, uh, altitude training before I was meant to come back for two days, pick up my gear and then go to Alaska, right? So while I was in Ecuador, I get a phone call from the climbing company saying, uh, we're sorry to tell you that your guide, who was my guide in uh, Antarctica, uh, let's say a month or a month and a half prior to that, passed away with an assistant guide and I think four or eight other climbers in a climbing accident he passed away and they have to give me to another climbing company because they don't have a guide so already that was like a big hit like that emotionally that was like he passed away uh doing what i'm about to do so that was very difficult and then i my gut told me to cancel but because i had already paid for the flight for the permit for the visa everything was set i didn't want to cancel i went anyway Unfortunately, I was, I think I was given to a team last minute and that team was filled with people that were not ready. Uh, communication is very important. Uh, we don't all have to speak English, but we need to communicate. And unfortunately, many of them didn't speak English. So we couldn't have a communication with the team. And the guide was, I'm just going to politely say he was a little bit racist, I think, towards me. He kept calling me princess in not a cute way. So he was, he had a, A prejudice that I was a spoiled person and anyone that climbed with me knows I am not a spoiled person so it was all of it was terrible and then add to the fact that we had bad weather we got marooned at 14,000 for eight days with not enough food because we were waiting 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 for the snow to get better we attempted uh, one of the days we attempted to to push for the summit a massive avalanche happened thank god not not where we were, but you could still feel the vibrations. Uh, anyone that was on the mountain when that avalanche happened, you don't know where it's coming from when it's bad weather. Um, and notice that I'm going through this very quickly because I hate this story. <laughs> and then we got stuck. I got 
really tough for me. And then I got eczema all over my body. And then I lost all my toenails and half of my eyebrows from stress. And then um, the toenails came back, in case anyone's wondering. My mom always says, tell them that the toenails came back. They came back and they're pretty. I'm very lucky. But the emotional trauma of being stuck on the mountain for eight days with two other human beings in a tiny tent, not knowing what's going to happen without the summit, was really difficult. And then I was, we were, every day was like, okay, today you're going to leave. No, you're not going to leave. Okay, today you're going to leave. No, you're not. It was like emotional yo-yo, playing yo-yo with emotions. And then finally, we got a break in the weather when the wind was not was was reasonable because if it's if it was above I think uh, fifteen or twenty knots, we couldn't cross the bridge in Denali. Finally, we got decent or okay weather, and we had to walk for something like twenty hours. I didn't have a single toenail left by the time I got to where the 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 plane picked us up. Uh, there is a hill called Heartbreak Hill, very very accurately named the heart heartbreak hill it, it, it really breaks your heart it's the last hill you have to go up before you get to where the where the planes take you and for those 20 hours i was bashing myself saying you did this to yourself you're an idiot i was really emotionally drained and i could not bring myself to be positive because as you can imagine it was the end of my emotional wit came back home from that mountain took off my boots threw them under my bed and said i will never climb again and it really, really, okay, I can't say it broke me. It nearly broke me. It bent me in a way that nothing else did. And I was so heartbroken and emotionally drained that I really thought I was never going to climb. And I thought that I was never going to get to my seven summits. But um, my parents know me so well. Uh, my father, my mom kept, kept my boots. I wanted to throw them away. But they kept my boots. And... Again, my character, my true character comes back after I healed, after I took time to, to, to get back to who I truly was. I found the courage to go back to the mountain. And trust me, going back to that mountain was one of the scariest things of my life. The first moment I got off the plane and I, I, my foot touched the ice, I nearly panicked. I nearly had a panic attack, but I controlled it. When I heard the engine of the plane fly away, I also almost got a panic attack. But once I got into it, and this time I was with an amazing guide. Uh, I was with, uh, do you know Dave Hunt? Of course. Okay, so I was with Hunt. I was with Dave Hunt. And to his credit, um, I had so much drama with other, the other companies, really, really bad drama with companies. Unfortunately, a lot of them, some of them, were charging, were giving me ridiculous, they were charging me a lot of money. They thought that I, I, I don't know, they were asking for a lot of money. Other companies were saying that, oh, you couldn't finish last time, which means you're not strong enough. You need to pay double for someone to help you carry your things with you. Um, and there were only five companies in Alaska that could guide Alaska. So very lucky I, I contacted uh, uh, um uh, I am um, mountaineering um, RMI uh, and there was only one seat left and they told me, listen, we have one spot left and it's on Han's group. And Han is tough. And if he thinks you are not suited, he's going to kick you off the team. Uh, I'm like, put me on Han. I accept anything he says and I'm going to prove to you that I can, I can 
make it. And he emailed me. He said, listen, I'm going to give you a shot. But please understand that if it's between you and the safety of the team, I'm going to cut you. And luckily enough, I, I trained my butt off, guys. I trained for, I trained for, I think, total four months. But the last two months, I trained every single day for two months. I got to the mountain. For the first couple of days, I was right beh- behind uh, Dave. You know, when, you, when you're weak, the weakest person, they usually put you behind the head guides. I was behind Dave for the first couple of days. And then towards the third or fourth day, he, he let me go wherever I want. And towards the end, I was anchor. And one of the best moments of my life, the best ending to this horrible story was, was when we summited, I was approaching the summit. Uh, the team, which was from all over the world, uh, started clanging their, their, their gear together and saying, seven, seven. And I got to the summit and I summited the mountain and I got really emotional and I dedicated to my dad. I came back, when I came back, when I finished the summit, when we were celebrating, uh, Dave Hahn was like, listen, uh, I want you to know this. You earned your right to be on the team. You are a really good climber. I trusted you just like anyone else. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And, it, and I, I would, it was an honor for me to be uh, the guide that helped you get your seven. So from Dave Hahn, come on. Like, it was like one of the most, the best compliments ever because he's a hard ass. I, 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 I respect him immensely, but if anyone knows Dave, and you can put your input on it. He's a really, really, he, he, the first, I think two days or first day or second day, one of the teammates sat on one of the, um, one of the fuel. He sat on it. It was in his sled. He sat on it and he, he, he killed, he ripped him. He was yelling at him. Grown man. The guy was older than Dave and Dave just went off on him for sitting on the can and I was like oh my god what am I gonna how am I gonna do this but towards the end it was such a pleasure and honor for him to say that for me to be part of the team and to get my seven with with that team after so many people were doubting me was such an honor sorry it's a long story but yeah like Denali was really really one of the most uh tough but rewarding mountains I've ever had to experience wow how do you think the world will look like if we apply some of Dave Hand's leadership skills? Oh my God, a lot of people would, would have black eyes because many people will not be able to take the sharpness of Dave. I respect him immensely, but back me up. Dave is harsh. Dave is, Dave is a tough one. Dave is really tough. Like he says it as it is. He doesn't baby you. No, like you, you do your job. If you do your job well, good. You get okay. But if you do it bad, he'll... he'll set you straight and i respect that about him i respect him immensely for it if it's a matter of life and death there are no rooms for errors so exactly so i think the the world will be very efficient if they went with dave hunt they won't have as many friends but they'll be very efficient (laughs) if they were he was an awesome storyteller though and a very uh charismatic and charming guy and to me he was very fair and very and very supportive in the beginning, no, I was like, I think in the beginning he, he didn't, oh, I, I understand. He wanted to see if I had what it takes, but towards the end, yeah, I, I, I'm so happy I got to, to get his, his approval. Since you were aspiring for several firsts and records set by Saudi women, did that help you raise the money? Nope. <laughs> um, I didn't know that I was setting a record until I was actually uh, booking things and, and and making my way to the mountain. I didn't know. 
And at the time, it wasn't cool to sponsor Saudi women. It was not, it was still not okay to be, uh, to sponsor or to be supportive of, of women that way. It was still, you know, um, taboo, if you may. Uh, so I didn't have a single sponsor uh, besides the, uh, the trek, the base camp trek by Princess Rima, uh, in terms of mountains, I didn't have a single uh, corporate sponsor. The, the, the people that helped me get there were my mom and my dad. I put all my savings in, and then when I, I was broke, it was my mom and my dad. Mm. I have the same situation when I did the seven summits, and uh, it was hard. It was harsh raising the money and basically saving up every single cent for this endeavor. But in the end, it paid off. Uh, I think that being extremely focused and uh, sometimes pig-headed makes you uh, end up at the end yeah, results. If you could give some advice to women in Saudi, and I think women in general, how to run their own expeditions or to succeed with their own wildest dreams. What kind of advice would you give them? I've noticed that the majority of people in general are too afraid to start something because they are afraid of the failure that might happen. So I always tell people to never be afraid of failing. Um, falling down is a, a rite of passage. It, it's, a per, it's one of the things that you need to accept in life. And the only shame is in not get, getting up and giving up and not trying something. That's the only thing you should feel ashamed of is, that, is being too afraid to try. But a lot of people are afraid of the stigma of failure. But I remind you that every single human being who has ever done anything worthwhile has failed. From pick anyone in history, um, Edison, how many bulbs did he have to do to get the right one? Um, Einstein, how many times did he have to get it wrong to get the theory of relativity right? Steve Jobs, he had a few failures before he got to his successes. Every single person that has ever done anything that, that is, has a magnitude in life has failed. It is part of life. So I encourage you to try to see beyond the failure and accept the fact that it is a possibility. It's just a rite of passage in life. I always joke uh, with my mom. I have lots of, I play volleyball. I'm very sporty. I climb. So I have lots of cuts and bruises all over my body. And she always makes fun of me. She's like, your, your, your legs are like a map, <laughs> a road map. Because I have lots of cuts. So I always tell her that I'm proud of every single scar I have on my body because every single one of them has a story and a lesson for me. And I would rather live a long life full of scars and lessons than a perfect life that hasn't taught me anything. So I, I encourage you all to embrace the fact that you might fail and just um, ask yourself, what, uh, what can you live with? What, is the thing, what are the things you can live with? Uh, in my case, I, I, with Denali, for example, I kept asking myself, what can you live with? Um, giving up or an attempted failure? Another attempt. Giving up or another attempt? And the answer was another attempt. I couldn't accept that I could just give up. I couldn't accept it. So embrace the fact that you, 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 you might fail, but what if you win? What if you win? Then what? Insightful lessons, life lessons. If you could awesome. relive one moment in your life, which would that be? Oh, wow. So 
a lot of people when they ask you what's the most favorite moment you have or what they assume it's on the mountain or an award or or a trophy and i'm very lucky i have amazing moments like that i've won amazing things i have amazing awards those are fantastic moments but the moment that i would love to relive um, was not on the mountain was not on the stage uh, was was none of these things it was when i landed in saudi after Everest, and I was bombarded with media, good and bad, mainly bad. I was getting lots of negativity, and I was really worried about my parents' um, response. I was really worried about my parents' uh, reaction and social, you know, the social pressure and all that. I was really, really worried. I didn't have a chance to speak to them because I was really, you know, it was everything happened so fast. I landed in Saudi Arabia, and you know those boring airport doors that open. Though that's the moment I want to repeat. The moment I landed home. Those boring, mundane doors in Jeddah airport opened and I could see my mom and my dad's face and they were absolutely proud. They, they didn't have a single line of, of anger or, 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 or frustration, nothing. They were two proud parents. And that's the moment I would love to relive. Mm-hmm. Mountains are amazing. Um, they are fantastic, but seeing my parents glow like that because of me is the moment I'd love to relive. And hopefully one day, if I if I'm very lucky, uh, I can I can finally have minimis that uh, I can go on these adventures with them, and they can make me glow like that one day. So that that's the moment I would love to live to relive. So you being the black sheep and the nuthead in the family, have you <laughs> had the courage? yet to take your parents to the local climbing gym oh i you know what they i would love to my dad is bless him is really old poor guy god give him a long life and and health he's really old he has issue with his knees i can't really take him he's too frail i take him with me in spirit and i always share my stuff with him my videos and all of the things i discover so unfortunately um, the limitation is his health. My mom, last year, um, I took her on a, a one-on-one trip, me and her, to the Maldives, uh, to scuba dive. And we were like on an island, discovering it on our own. Uh, and then I took her to Oman. And we did some r- rock climbing and hiking. Uh, and that was my little, little chance to go on adventure with my mom. Um, they are, honestly, I, I owe so much to them. They are really incredible human beings i have also friends that are family they aren't you know bound to me by blood but they are my family that have been there for me uh maha and maria and you know you have these people that are put in your path that really help you and people like marwa god rest your soul you find these gems in life uh you find people that help you but you are the one that needs to move you are the one that needs to put yourself in the path of these people and these opportunities you can't just sit there and wait for things to happen. What about your upcoming book that commemorates your courageous parents who you oh, say wow. that changed <laughs> what it seems to be Saudi parent today? And can we I expect know. this book to hit the Oh my God, so I've been, that's another, that's another drama. So I've been writing this book for years. I finally got it to agents. We've been trying to get it published. Uh, I think with everything that's happening in, in now in the region and around the world, it's been really hard to get it published. But uh, we might be able to get it into something, you know, uh, some form of publication, hope, 
hopefully. Uh, I'm going to stop saying soon. I'm just going to say hopefully because <laughs> every time I say that, it gets delayed. But um, I really want to share my story. I really want to, um, maybe maybe it might fall in the hands of the father or the, the actual per, first Saudi woman to win in the Olympics. You never know. You never know where that book might go or who, might, who it might inspire. So hopefully I can get it there, whether it's a book or a, or a mini series or a poem or a, or a movie, anything. I just want to get this book <laughs> out there. Um, I'm still working on it and I have, uh, I have lots of amazing people trying to help me with it. So hopefully I can get it where it should be. Well, we are many people looking forward to it and uh, I'm going to be the first one who sign up for the first copy <laughs> and you have to sign it. <laughs> I would not do. And by the way, for those of you who, who are listening, we actually we have to explain. Me and you never actually met. We've been we've been we've been like pen pals for years, right? We've been, yeah. Time flies. How many years now? Two thousand thirteen, well, I think. What? I'm not very astute when it comes to. No, uh, I remember. Calling. So someone connected us. Someone connected us online and then we've, we've stayed like 10,000 on, on yeah. Facebook for, for years. So hopefully we can meet in person one day. That would be fantastic. Adventure. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, any new expeditions in the loop that we should uh, look out for? I'm glad you asked. So besides the book that I'm trying to get a, uh, published, I've always dreamt, always dreamt of going to space. And now I don't know how that's going to happen or when, but I'm going to make sure that I will try so I've been trying for the last couple of years. I actually applied to the space program and I got selected. I made, I think, uh, out of thousands of people in the Middle East, I was the only uh, non-scientific, non, uh, non, uh, non, not a pilot, not a scientist uh, who made it. I made, I think, top six. The only one of the main reasons why I couldn't continue is because I wasn't a scientist and I wasn't a pilot. <laughs> but I was very proud to have been selected made, and made it that far. Um, I also clashed, I think, with 90% um, of the men who were there <laughs> for obvious reasons. But I, I left with a, a handful of really amazing uh, friends that I respect. And um, yeah, it was just such a cool experience. So I'm trying to get to space. For anyone who's listening who has ideas for me, let me know. I'm happy to, to, to hear suggestions. So but, sky is um, not the limit. The, no, it isn't. I think... Even if I don't get there, the fact that I believe I can try, I, I, I don't mind. I just want to try. You never know. Any last words you want to share? So many, but I think um, just that the world is beautiful. Um, there are some horrible things, yes, but try to train yourself to also see the positive. Uh, stay in touch with your humanity. Don't let uh, the current state of fast life and technology disconnect you from who you are. Uh, and you are a representation of your background, your belief, your culture. Uh, so take that in account with your actions. Don't, you are not an individual. You are part of the big picture. So when you travel, respect others. Um, put out the best image you want because you... We never know what impression you're leaving behind. So you, we are, each and every one of us are many ambassadors for, um, like I said, your background, religion and nationality and ethnicity. So make, make sure that you have a good, uh, good image that you leave behind. 
try to try to lead with that. And uh, I think the world will be a better place if we all got in touch more with our humanity. But yeah, it was a pleasure, absolute pleasure. I'm very happy we got to to finally speak to each other. And this is a great way for me to get to know you. And hopefully, uh, we can actually meet in person. It's been well, years. We have to meet at some point. The the pleasure and honor is on my side, Ra. And I must see, say that. When I leave you, I leave you with a very warm feeling and something that touches awesome. my heart, especially is how you summon up this podcast by saying that being in touch with our humanity. And uh, I think that is very, very essential today when we are bombarded with inflicting ideas about forests are in fire, it's virus pandemic, yeah. it's crashing economics and it's devastation all around. We can't lose our faith. We can't lose track on the beauty that remains and is worth fighting for. So I think you have taught us a lot about perseverance, about uh, love for and lure for the adventure, but also being true to yourself. So uh, a big warm exactly. thank you for being on the podcast and uh, My pleasure. forward to talk to you soon again. And uh, if, people <laughs> want, if people want to find out more about you, please, where should they look? Uh, look, I'm, I, try to, I try to answer every single message I get. So I'm on Instagram, Raha Moharek. So R-A-H-A-M-O-H-A-R-R-A-K, one word, all of it together. Please forgive my spelling mistakes. I'm really bad at typing, but I promise you that I will answer you uh, as fast as I can if you ever need anything. Thank God for autocorrection. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. My pleasure.